book of Ephesians tells a cosmic story of God's plan for God's people. God invites us to participate in the sound of heaven reverberating on earth. There's been an unseen battle raging from the beginning of time. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness, and God plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. This cosmic plan is in Christ's body, the church. The church is God's most powerful means of transforming the world and is central to God's eternal purposes. The church displays Christ's power as he loves and blesses his people despite their sin, as he unifies them despite their differences. The church is the unstoppable vehicle of Christ's powerful love and grace moving with unstoppable power until Christ fills all in all. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good morning again. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is John. I serve Mission Church as lead pastor. And I'm honored and humbled to gather and worship with you this morning, uh, especially as we celebrate what looks like was homecoming. Um, but the fact is, is, there's different things of Las Vegas all over the walls, and so it's a reminder of where our mission is. So as we sit here, we're being equipped to reach this city. So that's pretty cool. If you're new around here, our mission and vision is to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And we accomplish this as we love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. You see, Mission Church, we are unapologetically centered on God's Word. We are centered on the Bible, for the Bible contains the very authoritative words of God. It is without error, has full authority, and so as a result here at Mission Church, the Bible is our ultimate authority, and so we sing God's Word, we pray God's Word, we preach God's Word. And this morning, we're continuing in our current sermon series through the beautiful letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. And we've entitled this series, God's Plan for God's People. For in this letter, we see that we have been invited to be a part of God's plan for the world, despite our our brokenness, in spite of our weaknesses. God plans to use His church to transform the world for His glory. Friends, Jesus, He has triumphed over the powers of darkness. Amen? And God, He has given Jesus all authority over all powers and all rulers of the world. And ultimately, God, He plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And this cosmic plan of God is being displayed in and through us, the church. Now, if you have your Bible, uh, please grab it, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the back table. For you, please feel free to get up and grab one at any point in time, and that's yours to keep. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Now, we're going to focus on verses 8 through 10 this morning, but to get a head start and some context, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And if you're able, when you get there, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, 
according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text, particularly verses 8 through 10, both practically and relationally, especially regarding two extremely important questions. First, how is someone saved? See, there may not be a more important yet controversial question. How is someone saved? And the second question is why? Why are you saved? And for what reason? What are you saved for? Last week we discussed what you were saved from, but what is the point? What is the purpose of your salvation? And this morning, this sermon is, taught, is called, entitled, The How and the Why. The How and the Why of Salvation. But before we dive in, when you join me in prayer. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as I, as I preach, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. For God, you are my rock and redeemer. And I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our hearts so we might know you more. We pray, Lord, that you would stir in us a greater affection for Jesus. Equip us to be zealous to leave here today on mission to lead others to you as you've instructed us to right before you ascended. And God, we thank you for your love and your grace and the faith in which we have been saved. We give you all glory. Your word says that so we may not boast so that you might be glorified completely. And so this morning we glorify you fully. We love you and we thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The lowest elevation in the U.S. is 282 feet below sea level, and it's found at the bottom, in the middle of what's called Badwater Basin in Death Valley National Park. This valley, this basin is so dry, so hot, that experts advise, do not go there in the summer. In fact, it is the hottest spot in the country, which is a record setting 134 degrees in the shade. Badawater Basin is a perfect picture of the park's name, Death Valley. Now, if you wanted to, you can take a day trip, a road trip, and, and you can go from, uh, you can journey from the lowest point in the continental U.S. to the, the highest peak. For just a few hours north of Badwater Basin is the highest point in the continental U.S., Mount Whitney which is 14,494 feet. 
You can stand at the top of the country and you can, you can delight over the wonderful panorama of the Sierra Nevadas. And you can stare 80 miles south and look straight into Badwater Basin. Paul takes us on a similar journey here in Ephesians chapter 2. He takes us from the lowest depths to the highest peak. In verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul provides a clear and powerful summary of salvation. The remarkable flow of thought begins in the death valley of the soul. Verses 1 through, to, 1 through 3 describe how low sin drags us down. In fact, sin makes us spiritually dead. It enslaves us. It condemns us. Then in verses 4-7, through seven, Paul explains how high Christ lifts us up. We were made alive with Christ. We were raised with Christ. And we are taken up to the amazing heights as we are seated in the very summit of the mountain of life, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our text this morning, verses 8-10, through 10, they summarize this journey. They recap for us. The, the, the journey from the very depths of sin's valley to the amazing heights of salvation. And they reveal to us how and the why of salvation. And in this capsulation, we find three truths of salvation. One, the source of salvation. Two, the means of salvation. And three, the purpose of salvation. And so we have the source, the means, and the purpose of salvation. Let's begin with one, the first truth, the source of salvation. And let's look back to Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 5, for it's here that we see the divine intervention that saves sinners. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Make note or underline this word saved. This word means to be rescued. It's a verb. It's, it's an action. It's to be restored. It's to be delivered. In general terms, when a Christian proclaims that they are saved, they're usually referring to the truth that they have been forgiven of their sins. But this word is so much richer than that. And it, it encompasses so much more. It speaks to something greater. This word means not just the forgiveness of sin, to be saved or to have salvation is to be delivered from death. It's to be delivered from the bondage of sin. It's to be delivered from the condemnation of sin. Also, this word saved speaks not only to what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved to. We who were once spiritually dead have been made alive, the text says. We have been raised up with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. And now the, the question is begging to be asked, how? How does this miracle of salvation happen? If you're not a Christian, how can you be saved? And if you are a Christian, how were you saved? Well, let's look at verse 8. For you are saved by grace. We have been saved. If you have been saved, it's a fact. It's a truth that you can know. It's a truth that you could be secure in. The grammar indicates that salvation is a past action. It's a past action that has already been completed. It's done. There's nothing that needs to be added. There's nothing that can be taken away. If you have been saved, then you are and will forever be saved. 
during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world came together to debate this, uh, this fact, but more, more instinctly or uh, detailed, they were, they were debating the differences between different religions. And one of the debates was, is there any belief that's unique to Christians, to the Christian faith? And so they began eliminating the possibilities in this debate. They said, well, is it the incarnation? Well, no, because this religion believes something similar in this way. And they said, well, is it the resurrection? And, and that wasn't it. And as a result, they just, the debate kept going on and on and on until C.S. Lewis, he walks in the room, he wanders in, he says, hey guys, what's the fuss all about? And they shared with him the conundrum. What is it that makes Christianity unique? And Lewis responds, well, that's easy, guys. He says the thing that makes Christianity unique is grace. Grace. Lewis was completely correct. The good news of grace is uniquely Christian. Every other religion in every other way, in one way or another, they teach how do you reach up to God? What do you need to do to acquire salvation? What do you need to do to earn salvation? What do you need to do to reach God? But Christianity teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is only God who saves. You see, biblical Christianity begins by declaring that all of us are spiritually dead sinners. We are born Sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God, but God, but God, He has reached down. He has reached down to reconcile us to Himself by the righteous life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what verse 8 means when it says, by grace you have been saved. Make note or underline this word grace. What is grace? It's so much more than a plaque that you buy from Hobby Lobby. There's so much that comes to, that that this word speaks to. What is grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor. It is the love of God going out towards the utterly undeserving. Grace is God's unearned love. Grace is God's redeeming sacrifice. Ultimately, grace speaks to the truth that salvation is a gift of God. Consider with me Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Paul writes here, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The famous hymn says it like this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. The man who penned these famous words, John Newton, was born to a godly mother and a father who was an irreligious sailor. His mom died when he was just six years old, and so he was raised by his father, and he had so much of an influence on Newton that Newton, he ultimately became a foul, vile, and horrendous slave-trading sea captain. However, that's not how he's remembered, is it? Because He was saved by grace through faith. And now he's remembered as a beloved pastor and hymn writer. You see, it was the memory of the sinful life from which he was redeemed that moved Newton to pen these beautiful words. Amazing grace. And as I was thinking of that song this week, I I couldn't help but thinking about us. And and I wondered, have, 
Have some of us forgotten what we have been saved from? Have you forgotten that you were once spiritually dead? Have we forgotten that you were born a sinner? And that you were at one time influenced by the world, by the devil, and by the flesh? Have you forgotten that you were at one time a child of wrath with no ability to even believe in God? Brothers and sisters, you may not have been a vile, horrendous slave trader like Newton was, but even the smallest sin is deserving of God's wrath. Even the smallest sin makes you dead. But it is by God's grace you have been saved. And this truth should lead us, brothers and sisters, to rejoice like we sang in the first song this morning. It should lead us to live a life of gratitude and worship for what God has done and what we can never do for ourselves. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, grace is the good news that you cannot be so horrendously vile that God cannot save you. You are not so far gone that God cannot soften your heart and give you the gift of faith. This morning, answer God's call. Run to the cross. Trust in the blood and the righteousness of Christ to save you this morning. This leads us to our second point. The means of salvation. The means of salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. Through faith. The language here is essential. The order here is essential. Faith is not the source of our salvation. Salvation is by God's grace, not by our faith. But grace is received through faith. Grace is the source. It is the basis. It is the grounds of salvation. While faith is the means. It's the instrument. It's the agent of salvation. Now what is faith? Well, to properly understand faith, I think it's better to first understand what faith is not. Faith is not mental assent. Faith is not theological theological agreement. Faith is not personal determination or warm, fuzzy feelings or a positive confession. Saving faith isn't even a biblical knowledge that leads to trust. Faith is not passive, but faith is gospel's, the gospel's call to action. See, we have to understand that our faith, according to what the Bible says, it does not contribute anything to our salvation. God's grace does it all. And finally, there's no such thing as self-produced faith. Think about it like this. All faith is the work of the object. You trust who you trust because of what they have or have not done. And you do not trust who you do not trust because of what they have or have not done tracking with me my wife said make sure you say that slow so it is with saving faith faith that saves is about the worthiness of the object not the work of the believer it is not the size or the strength of your faith that saves you it is the object of your faith that saves you this was the material cause of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which divided Christianity into Catholics and Protestants. During the Reformation, the faithful recovered the gospel by insisting that faith is not about what we do, but about what Christ has done. Remember that at one time you were spiritually dead, but God, He made you alive, which means before you can have faith in Jesus, this Holy Spirit has to first Give you a new spiritual birth. I'm reminded of John chapter 3. 
verses 3 through 5, Jesus is explaining salvation to a guy named Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that a person is to be born again before he can see or enter the kingdom of God. In other words, even faith by which you enter the kingdom of God is a gift of God. You see, the Holy Spirit brings us to new spiritual life so that we can trust in Christ. In order for you to believe, the Spirit of God must raise you from the dead and give you the gift of faith. And then you exercise that gift of faith to trust in Christ. Paul makes this explicitly clear. Look back at verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this, underline this, circle it, write it down in your notes. We'll come back to it. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not from works, so that no one can boast. Hopefully you underlined or took note of the antecedent, this. If it's been a while since you've taken a grammar class, that's okay. An antecedent is a word that takes the place of a previous word or phrase. And the verse Eight here, this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, it's God's gift, not from works. What is this referring back to? What is not from yourselves? What is God's gift? What is not from works? Is it referring to grace? Is it referring to faith? Is it referring to both? Well, in the original language in the Greek, the antecedent, this, It's pointing to the entire phrase, you are saved by grace through faith. You see, this is a package deal. The grammar here is tricky, but the text is proclaiming that the entire grace through faith experience is a gift from God, not from your works, not of yourself, so that you might not boast. We'll get to that in a moment. And now you may be thinking, geez, John, why why is this so important What's the big deal? The reason why this is so important because this one word has been misinterpreted by many. There are professing Christians who believe that when it comes to salvation, grace is God's contribution and faith is man's contribution as though salvation were a collaboration between man choosing God and God extending grace. It's the idea that somehow man maintains a degree of freedom which allows him to cooperate with the grace of God. That somehow, man's evil, man's sin, while weakened by the flesh, he's not totally depraved. This belief is called semi-Pelagianism. And listen to me, this belief is false. It's not biblical. In fact, it was deemed a heresy by the church, the Council of Carthage in 418. And then again, at the Council of Ephesus in 431. This is why studying the history of what has taken place in God's church is so important. Because a lack of that knowledge and a lack of biblical literacy leads to this. Ephesians 2.8, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this, or being saved by grace through faith, is not from yourself. It's God's gift not from works. The question we must answer is this. Is faith our creation? 
Is faith something we do? Is faith a result or, or so-called self-determining free will? Or is faith God's creation? Well, let's look at what the text says. Look back at verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were what? Dead in our trespasses. You are saved by what? Grace. Brothers and sisters, you were dead. We were dead. And God, by His grace, He made you alive. By grace you have been saved. You see, grace saves the spiritually dead. And this word dead in verse 5 speaks to the truth that faith is a gift of God. Dead people do not have the ability to create faith within themselves. Look back at verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift. Paul makes this pretty clear. You are saved by grace through faith, and your salvation is not of yourself. In other words, grace is not from you. And faith is not from you. There is no human virtue, performance, or accomplishment that you can do to save yourself from the wrath of God that your sins have earned and deserved. Think about it like this. In the same way that you contributed nothing to your physical birth, there is nothing that you can contribute to your spiritual birth, including faith. Salvation is not your doing. Living right won't save you. Doing good won't save you. Getting baptized won't save you. Joining a church won't save you. Giving money won't save you. And loving others won't save you. Verse 8 says, it's God's gift. God is the agent. He is the one who does this. If you have faith in Jesus, your faith is a gift that God has given you. And we should rejoice that He has granted us with such a gift. The fact that you trust Jesus, the fact that you've trusted in the blood and the righteousness of Christ for salvation is not your doing. Saving faith is a divine gift. Consider Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it, in the context, it's speaking of salvation. For salvation, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, faith, but also to suffer for Him. Faith has been given. The bottom line is this. Salvation is by grace through faith. And it's free. And it's a gift. It's a gift we received. It's not a reward that we earn. You cannot earn a gift. You cannot buy a gift for yourself. You cannot win a gift. It's freely given, or it ceases to be a gift. And this is how God saves dead sinners. Salvation is not our doing. It's only a gift of God. Or it's not salvation. You see, God is holy and we are not. And the holiness of God demands that sin be punished by death. Guilty sinners are doomed to suffer the wrath of God in hell forever. Ultimately, salvation is an issue of the righteousness of God. But how can we, guilty sinners, acquire the righteous merit needed to satisfy the holy justice of God? Well, the Gospel reveals to us the good news that God has provided for us what He demands. The wrath of God was fully satisfied through the bloody cross and the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are saved by the, through the finished work of Christ. And when we accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we act by faith, the faith that God has supplied to us through His grace. 
when a person chokes or drowns or stops breathing, there's nothing that they can do on their own. If he's going to breathe again, it will be because someone reacted in the moment, gave him CPR, and and started breathing into his lungs. In the same way, a person who is spiritually dead cannot make decisions of faith unless God first breathes into him the breath of spiritual life. Faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. And Paul, he emphasizes this further by saying that salvation by grace through faith is not a result of works. Look at verse 9. This, saved by grace through faith, is not from works. Why? So that no one can boast. Verse 9 is not simply restating verse 8. But rather, it's an explanation of why salvation is not your own doing. Paul is saying, this is why this is so important. This is why I'm spending so much time on this this morning, because of this verse. And why it must be a gift of God. Salvation is not your own doing. Salvation cannot be earned through your good works. Why? Because the good news of the Gospel obliterates all boasting. It completely obliterates any boasting in and of us. Salvation is by grace alone so that you and I would have no grounds, no room, no reason to walk around boasting in anything within us. So that God alone would receive full glory. Now, this is not just a theological claim. We believe this in our everyday life. We believe that the one who does the work deserves the credit. Right? Well, God has done all the work. Therefore, God alone deserves all the credit. When it comes to your salvation, there's nothing that you can boast in because you have contributed nothing to your salvation. And the moment you do boast, whether you're boasting in some work that you did, some good deed that you did, some ritual that you did, even if you're boasting in your faith, that you partnered with with God, and I believe, therefore I'm saved, you're attempting at that moment to take away glory from God. In that moment, you're boasting. And friends, God alone deserves the credit. God alone deserves our worship. God alone deserves the glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 28, Paul writes, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in His presence. It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. If you've contributed anything at all to your salvation, then you have a reason to boast, don't you? But you didn't. You see, God saves sinners in a way that maximizes the praise of the glory of His grace and in a way that obliterates all human boasting in ourselves. I'll say that again. God saves sinners in a way that maximizes the praise of the glory of His grace and in a way that obliterates human boasting in self. John Stott, he commented on this verse. He says this. I thought it was helpful. We shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ. 
and the praises of God. There will indeed be display in heaven, not self-display, however, but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Jesus Christ. And Paul, he wraps this up with a nice little bow in verse 10. Let's take a look. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This word workmanship is pointing to everything we just talked about and more. But it's God's work. We are His workmanship. Christian, you were once dead, but by grace, through faith, you are a new creation. You're not simply improved on. Jesus didn't come to make bad people better or or bad people good or or to improve your moral uh, whatever. Like That's not why Jesus came. Jesus makes dead people alive. Faith in Jesus doesn't make you a better version of yourself. One that that your girlfriend can bring home to their parents or, or someone who is an upstanding citizen. That's not at all what this is about, but rather you are a new creation, completely new, made alive in Christ Jesus, the old you. You were spiritually dead with a heart of stone, and now you're a a new creation with a new heart, with a new nature. And Paul says this work of salvation, this work of grace and faith, this work of making the spiritually dead alive in Christ Jesus, well, that's a work of God. Now, this word workmanship, it solidifies the idea, like I said, that grace and faith are God's gift. This word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which literally means that which has been made, a work, a making. F.F. Bruce gives us a helpful definition. He says, we are God's work of art. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are God's work of art. What does the work of art contribute to itself? You are God's masterpiece. This is a helpful definition, but I don't think it fully explains the depths of what Paul is saying here. You see, it's true that Christians are God's masterpiece. That's true, but it doesn't stop there. You're not just His work of art. But there's more that this word is pointing to in the text. It's not just talking about us individually. But there's, there's more. Workmanship speaks to the process. What Paul is saying is God's masterpiece is the process in which takes dead, spiritually dead sinners and makes them alive to Christ Jesus. That's what the work of art is. It's referring God's work of the new creation. It's talking about you being saved by grace through faith. That is the work. That is the masterpiece. That is the work of art. Christ has done it all. There's no room for us to boast. There's no room for us to take credit. God alone deserves the glory. God alone deserves the honor. God alone deserves our praise. Brothers and sisters, you can praise them this morning with confidence. You can praise them this morning with hope. Because He has done a great work in you. And He is the one who will see that work through to completion. Thank goodness. Praise the Lord. If there's anything I contributed at all, and then some of this is on me to see it through, I'm done for. But the Bible is explicitly clear that He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He is the one who created the work. He is the one who will ensure its completion. And at the end of your days, you will be able to stand confidently before the throne of God, for you will be complete. The question needs to be answered, what's the point of this? 
What's the point? What is the purpose of salvation? And the answer to this question leads us to our third and final truth of salvation. The purpose of salvation. Look back at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. At this point, you should feel some tension in the text. Brothers and sisters, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, but true saving faith is not alone. True saving faith is always accompanied by good works that demonstrate a genuine profession of faith. Understand, however, good works only prove salvation, they don't accomplish salvation. Think about it like this, when we see lightning flash across the sky, what do you expect to follow? Thunder. We expect a crack of thunder to rattle the the sky. If If there were no lightning, there would be no thunder because one causes the other. It's like that with faith. Just as thunder always follows lightning, good works follow true faith. Consider the words of Jesus from John 15. In verse 8, Jesus is speaking to His disciples and He says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be My disciples. Jesus' half-brother James said it like this, Faith without works is what? Useless. It's dead. In other words, your good works do not bring on discipleship, but they do prove that you are a genuine disciple. You see, in the same manner that thunder contributes nothing to lightning, good works add nothing to our salvation. Rather, they are the sound of our faith and will follow every genuine conversion experience. The one without the other is not a real thing. If you hear a crack of thunder and there was no lightning, it's not thunder. Especially if you live around these parts (laughs) just kidding genuine faith is always evident by what follows a life of good works now the bible has a lot to say about works the bible talks about the works of the law which are good but can't save you it speaks of dead works and works done in the flesh and the bible says that that's evil basically all works that are done in our own strength anything that is done within our own strength has nothing to do with salvation. They have nothing to do with genuine faith or discipleship. Before we can do any good work for God, He has to do a good work in us. By God's grace, made effective through our faith, we become His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, God has ordained before time that you would live a life of good works. And these good works are not done in your own strength or power, but they are works done in His power and for His glory. You see, the same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do good works for which He redeemed us. Now remember the context. Paul here is primarily speaking to believers. He's not showing these believers how they are to be saved, but how they were saved so that they might be convinced that the power that saved them is the same power that keeps them. Brothers and sisters, just as you have been given everything necessary for salvation, you have been given everything you need to faithfully follow Jesus. To love Him. To live like Him. To lead others to Him. There's a familiar story of a young boy who was rowdy and disruptive in his Sunday school class. I mean, this boy was a handful. And he constantly frustrated his Sunday school teacher And one morning, the Sunday school teacher had enough, and she asked the boy, why do you act like this? She's had enough. If you've been there, you know. 
Do you know who made you? To which the boy replied, God did. He ain't done with me yet. Mission Church, we are still in the process of becoming like Christ. We are still imperfect. We are uncut jewels being finished by the divine craftsman. God is not finished with you yet, but His work will not stop until He has made you perfect in the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see that beautiful moment in 1 John chapter 3. He says that when you stand before Him on that day, you will become like Him because you'll see Him as He is. And there'll be no more sin, no more brokenness. What a day to anticipate and pray for and look forward to. I'm going to end with this thought. A famous actor was once the guest of honor at a party. And at this party, he received many requests to recite favorite excerpts from various literary works. He was a, a Shakespearean actor and And an old preacher happened to be at the party and he asked the actor to recite Psalm 23. The actor agreed on the condition that the pastor would would also recite the psalm after he was done. Well, the actor, he goes ahead and recites it because the pastor agreed to it and he he did so beautifully. There was power in his voice and the cadence and how he spoke was dramatic and the, the inflection of his voice was perfect. And, and when he was done, the entire room just exploded in applause. They were pumped. It was beautiful. Next, it was the preacher's turn. His voice was rough and it was broken from years of preaching. He was anything but polished in his presentation. But when he was finished, as broken and as rough as his presentation was, there was not a dry eye in the room. When someone asked the actor what made the difference, he replied, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Mission Church, salvation doesn't simply come from knowing about Jesus in these different theological discussions, but from intimately knowing Jesus himself. This new heart and this new life can only be accomplished by the power of God through his grace and mercy and through his gift of faith. And when we have an understanding of what the Bible is saying here, it's so freeing. And it opens us up to a life that is just adamantly at the feet of Jesus in everything that we do, in every space and place, and just fully living a life of worship. For He alone has done everything that is necessary. And He alone is doing everything that is necessary. And we will stand before Him at the end of our days complete. If you know Jesus, rejoice Leave here this morning equipped to do the good works that He has prepared for you. If you have been relying on anything within yourself for salvation, anything at all, I invite you this morning to repent and trust in Christ alone. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, and if you're hearing that inner call this morning, sitting here, if you are hearing this inner call to respond to the good news of the Gospel, to receive God's gift of faith, do so this morning. Exercise the gift. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Him alone for salvation. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for You. You're so loving and good. You're powerful and yet intimate. You've provided everything that's necessary for us to to know You, to believe in You, to do the works that You've called us to. Lord, help us to leave here this morning not only equipped for those good works, but just resting in the good news of the Gospel. That this is not anything of us. It's completely You. And God, You you deserve all the glory. 
forgive us for any time we've boasted in anything and of ourselves, whether it be our morals or, or something we've done or, or anything. Forgive us. You've done it all. We trust in You. We glorify You. And we love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.